Welcome to the Slam Radio Podcast, featuring Front Page 305. All right. Welcome to Front Page 305. This is Walter Villa, Wealthy Money, as people call me. And uh, our first guest today, Andre Fernandez, my co-host, joining me today. So we're going right to our first guest, and that's Eric Henry. Uh, that's somebody I got to know a little bit by uh, covering FIU for the Miami Herald. Eric is the managing editor, editor rather, of Underdog Dynasty, and he's also the Conference USA beat writer for SB Nation. Eric, are you with us? Yo, appreciate you having me on. In, indeed. So tell, tell us a little bit, like, how long you've been working uh, with both of those entities, and, and how did this all happen that you started covering FIU and Conference USA? Yeah, sure. So just kind of a quick synopsis is uh, I finished up my grad program in, in 2018. Uh, I was going to grad school in Chicago, but I'm a Florida native, so I definitely was trying to escape those Midwest winters, which right about now, I'm definitely glad that I'm not still in the Midwest. Um, and just through a friend of a friend, had a, a contact with SB Nation, and, and you know they were looking to expand their Conference USA coverage with, at the time, Lane Kiffin being at FAU, and of course, Butch Davis being at FIU. So it, it was intended to be kind of a joint deal, but then uh, the focus became more FIU, and for the past three seasons now, since the 2018 season, I've I've been doing Conference USA and FIU stuff, and of course, I've gotten to know you uh, over those three years as well. Yeah, I cover FIU for the Miami Herald, and uh, um, it's been interesting. First couple of years with Butch Davis, one great first three years, I guess it was. Developed two quarterbacks that got drafted in the NFL, something a lot of a lot of teams in the country can't say, and then the the wheels really fell off this past year, zero and five record, a lot of issues with coronavirus. Um, they have reworked their coaching staff. Um, uh, Eric, what did you think of the moves they made coaching wise? And, al- and also, what did you think of the fact I wrote about this in the Herald the other day? Now their offensive coordinator and their defense coordinator, are both black. And I guess that shouldn't be a story. Um, kind of like, Black quarterbacks in the NFL are not a story anymore, but once upon a time when Doug Williams was doing it and got to the Super Bowl was a story. So what are your thoughts on the staff overall and then just the, the, the component of race? And, and is that something noteworthy for you? Um, is it something pretty rare in college football to have both your offensive and defensive coordinator both being black? I know that's a, that's a long question, but I give you plenty of field to run. Sure. So I'll take the first part of that question first, right? And I think both the moves are interesting. Mentioned in your in your question, in your lead-in, they developed back-to-back NFL quarterbacks, and I had a chance to talk with James Morgan at the uh, East-West Shrine Game. You know, the, the Shrine Game he participated in in 2020, the last one that was available before coronavirus kind of took over, you know, our way of life. And he mentioned, both he and Alex Magoo mentioned that they felt that no other offensive coordinator would have had them as prepared for the draft process, the actual process of going through meeting with coaches and scouts and being prepared on the board. No one would have had them as prepared as Rich Skrosky has. And Coach Skrosky's offense is one that, you know, people are uh, is really known for preparing quarterbacks. Even back to his time at Ball State, prepared Keith Wenning for the NFL, and then, of course, Magoo and James Morgan. But I think it's interesting, Walter, right? If you don't have that quarterback, and sure, you can say this about any football team, right? If you don't have a quarterback, your offense is going to suffer. But we saw just how much this offense suffered when they didn't have a guy who, if he, and we've heard, you know, Coach Davis, Butch Davis say this a myriad of times after post games, right? About how Magoo and Morgan got him out of bad plays and into good ones. And, you know, that kind of sounded like a dry talking point, but. I think after this season, you see the importance of having that guy who knows the offense in and out, 
and can maybe get the offense out of those bad plays into good ones. And what effect that had on the offense this year, uh, only time will tell. You know, we'll see what happens with Hayden Carlson and Max Bortenschlager and so on and so forth. But I think bringing in Tim Harris may, or I should say promoting Tim Harris, the former running backs coach, it may be an offense that's just more conducive to saying, hey, if we don't have that NFL caliber quarterback, at least our offense isn't going to fall off the board. You're talking about a passing offense that averaged less than 125 yards passing per game. I think it was 123 to be exact. Now, when you go on the defensive hire, it's another situation that's interesting. Everett Withers is Butch Davis's former defensive coordinator in North Carolina. When Butch Davis resigned in 2011, if my memory serves me correct, Everett Withers took over as the interim head coach for, for North Carolina, that team, and then also went on to, to be a head coach at Texas State. So they had a prior relationship, and when Brent Guy resigned uh, due to personal reasons entering the 2018 season, Everett Withers had agreed in principle, which you know, Walter, to be the, the defensive coordinator. Uh, a last-minute opportunity with the New York Giants came up, and you know there were no hard feelings. Everett Withers took that job. So it, it, not to say that Jeff Kopp, who uh, assumed the co-defensive coordinator role, felt like a second fiddle, but we know that Everett Withers was meant to be the role that he's in now. So two years later... Uh, you know, things fall into place and Everett's there. So I think we'll see an improvement on the defensive end. And really quick to touch on the aspect of race. Uh, I do think it's interesting. Jerry Mack of Rice and David Smith of Rice. Uh, I believe Rice last year was the only FBS team to have two, two black coordinators, uh, one out of wow. 129. Uh, wow. Jerry Mack, yeah, Jerry Mack left to go to Tennessee this year. So that will make, uh, he joined Josh Heupel's staff at Tennessee. I believe he's the offensive analyst. So that will make FIU, at least as currently constituted, we know more hires are taking place. FIU would be the only FBS program to have two black coordinators. And I do think it's, it's significant. And especially when you, you have the tie-in um, with Butch Davis and you know his history as far as his coaching staff and things of that nature. So I do think it, it lends a level of significance, especially at the FBS level in which, as of now, they'll be the only team to have two black coordinators. Yeah, that, that is interesting that you did that research, and uh, I expect nothing less of you to know that. I didn't know that Rice was the only one. I knew it was, I, I, I guess my instinct, it was pretty uh, rare, and it's sad that it's rare, and hopefully going forward, it will be uh, more in commonplace. And in terms of the other thing, just to react to what you said, it's pretty interesting, the praise of Skrosky, and and sometimes it is seems like it's a change just to make a change, because certainly it seemed like a good coach. And, uh, you know, they parted ways and, and whether I know I know uh, Tim Harris Jr. has a big history in his community, probably is pretty uh, a good recruiter and in touch with with the local communities, which we have such an abundance of uh, of recruits down here is probably good from that aspect. But it may or may not be better in terms of the offense. And then also, Eric, I thought last year quarterback, there was just a lot of uh, there, there was a lot of lot of indecision. And you know that whole thing when you have two quarterbacks, you don't have any. And they had three. And um, I, I kind of feel like Wiggins didn't get enough run. He He's threat uh, running the ball. And people say he can't throw. But the one game started, and they, and they gave him a real shot the year previous. He won. I think it was against New Hampshire. And, and then the kid, uh, Stone Norton, he transferred. He looked really good. I liked him as well. Um, and the fact that he transferred. So I don't, you know, it's got to the point where you're not really confident what's going on at quarterback. Why did that, I don't know if you have any insight into that, Eric, as to why the Norton kid bailed and also why Wiggins didn't get more of a chance. I, the kid, um, the Maryland transfer, I thought his numbers at Maryland were pretty mediocre. 
I wasn't sure why they gave him as much opportunity where it didn't seem like once, once a season kind of went down the tubes, it seemed that be the opportunity to go with the younger guys and not with um, an older transfer like him that would seem to me to have less upside. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with Stone Norton first. You know, I, I've got a chance to, even though we didn't have a chance to talk to players face-to-face this year, I kind of got a chance to know people around Stone. And I think one of the things that played a factor into his transfer was just the fact that, and as you mentioned, he did have the most success at Liberty. And if you look right. at the numbers, while abysmal, Stone was the, had the most success out of any passer, right? So if you're looking for the he, passing he, numbers... Yeah. He came in that game and gave him a spark, and I thought, well, okay, here it is. Here's going to be the guy. And he had great numbers at Tennessee, Mr. Tennessee. So after that game, you kind of thought, all right, they found their guy. And then go ahead. What happened after that? Yeah, yeah. So, no, just I was thinking, talk to people close to Stone. I think the feeling was, okay, hey, I was the quarterback who got you the most success, you know, week one. Why is it kind of that open competition? And I think, you know, once again, talking to people close to himself that after Liberty – that he would have a chance to at least get, and as you know, it was a rotation. It, it was, hey, two drives here, all right, next guy, two drives, and to kind of give him that full game, right, that, quite frankly, none of the quarterbacks got. You know, I remember it was the, the, the Middle Tennessee State game, I believe I asked Butch Davis um, why he went with Kalen Wiggins for the majority of the second half, and he, he kind of said, you know, in, in a bit of frustrated tone, because he was the only one who practiced. And I, I guess that was the game where they had the false positives, you remember, you know, and, and that took out some of the quarterbacks. So maybe that played a factor. But I think the, the main reason that Stone's no longer with the program is that he never felt that, quote-unquote, that he got that opportunity to be the guy. And he's at a school right now in Southern Illinois where they're in the midst of their spring season. So we'll see pretty quickly, you know, what he has. As far as Kalen Wiggins, I, I think it's interesting, Walter. You know, I kind of take a bit of the opposite approach than, than you do. While Kalen is a dynamic runner, I mean, you mentioned the New Hampshire game. I believe the numbers were 189 yards. That's the record for uh, um, FIU quarterback as far as rushing yards. I, I think we saw enough of him, or we've seen enough of him as a passer, that you kind of know what you have. And that's not to say that he can't improve, but I think it's more of, wondering, you know, they brought in Max Bortenschlager thinking that he reminded people a lot of James Morgan in terms of the, you know, the smarts and certain attributes to that, that Morgan and Goo have. And maybe because of COVID, you feel that you haven't seen, because he didn't get the full spring practice, as you know, with COVID knocking out basically the entire offseason, that you don't, you haven't seen the best of him, where maybe you've seen uh, a certain amount with Kalen. I think that's kind of the feeling I've gotten. And, and, and you know, in effort of full disclosure, I spoke with Butch Davis last offseason in, in, in terms of uh, that quarterback story. And, and he said, which is why I found the situation with Kalen interesting, is that he, he wanted a quarterback who get get the ball to the receiver. You know, that no receiver is going to want to play with a quarterback who can't get them the football. And once again, you know, while Kalen hasn't had the most playing time in the time that he has played, passing has been a struggle, you know? So I, I think that probably plays a factor in why you see not only Hayden Carlson's name getting brought up, but Grayson James, the, the three-star recruit out of Texas as well. Yeah, I, I thought this last year, probably the way, just from the brief looks that we got, that I, the way I would have gone would have been Stone Norton as a starter after he showed what he showed at Liberty and the, and the history he had at Tennessee and the fact that he's so young that you with him and then a package for Wiggins. And I probably wouldn't have played uh, – Max uh, much at all and think that might have been the way to go but you mentioned uh, Hayden Carlson boy he Butch really praised him I think he's I think he mentioned Mahomes right you were in on that zoom call or uh, I forget when I talked to him or maybe that was just him and I I forget now but 
um, yeah, the, the, in terms of playmaking ability. And that is, is pretty interesting for him to throw that around. Um, in the remaining moments, Eric, what about um, the recruiting uh, season that FIU has had? I've interviewed, I think I've written about 14 other 18 kids or something like that and got a pretty good handle on it. What are your thoughts on, seemed like a pretty good class, although of course every school in the history of schools has always been optimistic about their class <laughs> until they start playing football. Um, but you as a neutral observer, what, what are your thoughts on what they brought in? No, and you're right, Walter, right? You know, every class, no one's going to say, man, you know what? We just didn't have a great class this year. But <laughs> here's, here's the thing that's interesting, right, with this class. And when you look at FIU, the, their last five wins, which are, are dating back to 2019, they're, they're over teams that have a combined 16 wins, right? So when Butch Davis says, hey, we've had a great recruiting class, either going to say the talent is there and we're just not making the most of those opportunities or the talent is there. And I'm of the belief that the talent is there. They just weren't necessarily making the most of those opportunities. Even go back to 2019 when you got NFL talent on your roster and you still only win six games. But as far as the 2021 recruiting class, you know, obviously the big name, the surprise was Savion Collins, right? Someone who was recruited mm -hmm. by Florida, had signed with Miami uh, at one point, or committed, excuse me, didn't sign, committed to Miami at one point in time. He ends up at FIU at a position of need. You know this very well. The run defense has struggled. Uh, up the middle defensive line, in terms of getting sacked into the quarterback, has struggled. And in FIU's last 30 games, they've allowed over 180 yards rushing 17 of those times. So you're going to need a big guy like Collins to get up there and stuff the run. But I think, and, and I'm you know, really curious, I'll leave the remaining time for you to how you feel about this. What I found most interesting is despite the 0-5 record and despite the 6-7 and 7 in 2019, you're still recruiting well in South Florida with Demetrius Hill and Katravis Jeter, who we know would have been a Power 5 guy if he had not had the injuries. But then you're also getting the attention of the Texas quarterback, which you know Texas is known for putting out great quarterbacks and Artez Hooker, guys like that. So despite the fact that the team is, is 6-13 and 13 or, or 6-12, and 12, excuse me, in their last 18 outings, they're still recruiting well, at least by the numbers. So that's something that, you know, you having talked to the recruits um, would know that, hey, clearly the, the lack of success on the field isn't scaring them off. Yeah, the Jeter kid, Larry Bluestein, raised about him at running back. Uh, you mentioned Artes Hooker, wide receiver. Then um, uh, Chambers, the wide transfer wide receiver. See, interesting as he steps up in class to see what he can do. Um, a lot of interesting players, uh, the Hill, the defensive back, he wants to play corner and be a really big corner. And it could be an NFL corner if he, you know, if he continues along with that projection, a lot of interesting players, but they, it's so funny that, yeah, we could talk about the roster, but it's going to come back to quarterback. If they have the same indecision again, it's, it's going to come back to bite them. They, I think they, at some point in early August, you know, consider, you know, hope that everything is okay with the virus and, and they can have spring football, which they didn't, they didn't have it all last year. So as all things being equal and, and, we're, be, and we're behind the worst of the virus by, by August, um, they need to settle on a quarterback. Maybe that is Carlson, uh, which is, I, I always like at this point, Eric, to, to go with that younger quarterback. He's had a year in the system. Well, I guess it'll be a little bit different system now with Tim Harris, but a younger quarterback and stick with him and 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 move forward but they have to be really decisive and it can't be auditions during football games like he's like he he's done and he's talked about doing i think they have to make a, a decisive call um eric uh great to join for you to join us rather on the on the show today insight you do a lot of great work and uh tell people where to find you on twitter sure absolutely you can find me on twitter at eric eric C. Henry underscore 
And you can find my work at Underdog Dynasty, SB Nation's home for group of five football coverage. All right. Great, man. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for doing this. And we'll be right back with Junior Orange Bowl tennis champion, Valeria Ray. Hey, look what I found. A radio. Radio. This is Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. Hey, everybody. This is John Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls. Giving a big shout out to Slam Radio, the only student-run radio station that's all national. Awesome, guys. Congratulations. And now we're back with Front Page 305 on Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. All right, we're back. This is Front Page 305, and I'm excited to be joined now by Valeria Ray, the Orange Bowl tennis champion, uh, a local girl at uh, Doral Academy, and her coach at Doral, uh, Justin Puppo. I hope I got that name right, Coach. How you guys doing? Pupo. Pupo. Valeria, how you doing? Very good. How about yourself? Doing well. I, I dragged you off the tennis court, I think, right? You were training when I called you? Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> How many hours have you already trained today? Um, I just trained two hours, and I'm on lunch break right now, and I'm on. A, I'm supposed to go back on court in in like a few minutes, um, for okay. three more hours. For for how many more hours after lunch? Three more hours. Three more hours. Uh, my producer just fainted uh, thinking about five hours on a tennis court in the uh, <laughs> in the Miami Heat. Uh, yes. But that's why you're <laughs> that's why you're a champion, Valeria. So um, I wrote about you recently for the Miami Herald, and uh, in it, you and your one of your buddies, one of your team, said told me the story about Breckenridge, Colorado. You were on a on a vacation with family and friends. Can you tell a little bit about that story and and your competitive competitiveness? What 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 happened? You guys went for a friendly hike. Yeah, so um, it all started when one day we're like, all right, let's go on. I woke up and early on we, we went to, to the mountains, beautiful mountains, by the way. Um, we went on the mountains and we decided to go on a walk, and on a hike, sorry. And they told us, they were like, oh, no, it's only two miles. And we're like, oh, all right, that's not that bad. Um, but early on, as we started hiking, we, we realized it's not two miles. It was more like a seven-mile hike. And I was like, you know what? Instead of making it dreadful, let's make this actually fun. And me being competitive, I told the whole group, I was like, especially um, my friend's um, brother, I was like, let's, uh, whoever gets to the top first is like basically the best, is like, you know. And then we all, like, we all took it pretty serious because at the top, there was this um, like waterfall and it was beautiful. And everyone was trying to get there. Everyone hiking was trying to get there. So I was, like we all started hiking, whatever, and then we we started. It reached the point where there was no trail, and it was basically you on your own. And it was, you know, all of us climbing with our bare hands, you know, on 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 a mountain and with like boulders. It was not even like small rocks. It was like boulders on top of each other, you know. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not gonna be the last one there. I'm gonna be the first one there. So um, we all started hiking, whatever, and then it reached the point where I left them all behind. And I was like, all right, this, this is good. And then, um, well, 
to make this story short, I got to top first. And then two minutes later, my friend's brother, the, the one that, that was also pretty competitive about the situation, he, he got to top two. And then at the end, like, as a group, we all were able to, like, see the waterfall. And it was just a beautiful sight at the end. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good sign of how competitive you are. And, and to let the people know, because you and I had talked about this previously, this is not like something on Disney World where you go up some ride and it's on a, it's on a track and it's all safe. I mean, this, is, this was treacherous. This is dangerous. There's no, as you mentioned, there's no real, there's no handrail for you to hold on to. Um, there's no trail even. So you're trying to go up fast and it, it could be a little bit dicey, a little bit dangerous, right? Yeah, um, I remember um, one of my friends that was in the group climbing, she um, she actually had to stop because she felt like she was about to faint because of how high the mountain was. And right. um, she had to stop and she threw up and everything. But like, we were all, everyone was taking breaks and stuff. No, like I, I took like max two breaks because I wanted to get there first. But right. it was it was it was challenging. It was like there was no rail, like there was no trail at all. You had to figure out how to get to the top. I'm thinking in a few years. How old are you? You're, you're 15, Valeria. Yes, I'm 15. You're 15. I, I figured in a, in, a, in a few years, however long it takes you to be a big professional ranks, and your agent is going to tell you, uh-uh, no more uh, hiking, no more dangerous stuff. You're too valuable a commodity. But uh, right now you're a kid, and uh, and it was fun. And and mentioned the elevation is I think it's I, I wrote about it, I think it's like six thousand feet for a Miami girl. Um, you, the the breathing becomes uh, difficult when you're not used to that that altitude. Correct? Yes, it's it was very challenging. And like even when we were um back to the to the place that we were staying in. Like, just being inside the home, it was challenging because, like, you had to take very steep breaths for us to, like, be able to keep going. And sometimes you felt dizzy. And, no, it, it was pretty challenging. Coach, uh, bring, what does that say about Valeria and, and the competitiveness that you've seen in her? Uh, we're talking about hiking, but that, how does that translate to the tennis court in her game? Doesn't surprise me one bit. I know I'm know Valeria since the sixth grade. And, you know, when she came to our team just as – you know, only a five foot tall young lady. She was as competitive as can be. This was from, you know, from her sixth grade year. And, um, you know, as I told you the story, uh, Walter, about her uh, in our first state championship win in 2018, it came down to a doubles match and I was walking by the courts and Valeria said to me through the fence, she's like, coach, we're not losing this match. And, you know, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, you know, she backed it up on the court with her doubles partner and, you know, propelled her to our first day championship win. But uh, Valeria is ultra competitive. She demands perfection from herself. She demands perfection from others, whether it be her doubles partner, whether it be another teammate. Um, you know, she wants everyone to to be at their best. And, you know, sort of like the Tom Brady mentality, he uh, she makes everyone better around her. Valeria, if I were to go out there to Doral Country Club to play in tennis, what advantages would you give me? Would you give me the doubles line? Uh chalk outline like a foot beyond the baseline so I can hit some balls long what what uh what breaks would you give me so I can be competitive with you um so you can be competitive with me um I'll probably make the deal that I won't hit any forehand no I like it all backhand all backhands and I'll probably give you a double line as well 
Now, what if I hit one wide to your forehand side? How are you going to hit a back? You're going to have to run around and turn and hit a backhand? Yeah, I would have to do that. Wow. I love it. I have to do that that match. I am a hacker. Uh, it, you would still probably win, but that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, Valeria, uh, talk about um, winning the Bowl. I think it was your your sixth year um, during that, that, you know, very prestigious tournament that most all the big names, I believe, have probably played in that, if not won it. I, I imagine Nadal and, and Agassi and anybody you want to mention has has least competed if not won the junior orange bowl this was your sixth try since i think you were nine years old correct yes yeah and then you, and then you finally won it which was amazing a pro-class field um i think you beat two five top five players talk a little bit about that and what did it feel to accomplish it and 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 talk about be the last match and how that went for you um so basically um for like Orange Bowl is like a very prestigious tournament and like and any young player always desires to win it and like everyone and me being nine years old um when I first competed in the tournament I saw like all the top players I, I wasn't top at that time and then I saw all of them playing and I was like wow like one day I want I want I want to be in that same level I want to I, I want to be at least in the finals like and I remember years past, um, year after year, I attempted, I attempted, and the closest I would get was round of 16 in the tournament. And but this year, um, this year, I don't know. I I I I was super determined to win. I I I did intense practices for like a whole month just for that tournament. So the tournament came around, and with all the regulations and everything, COVID tests, whatever, and then. The, the first match came in pr pretty solid. And then after my second match, which was probably like one of the hardest matches of the whole tournament, I was, I was playing an insane level. And I was like, like, obviously you go in the tournament, not thinking that you're going to win. Cause it's so, there's so many top players that you're like, anyone can like, not anyone, but any, any one of us can win it. Cause it's, it's just too much level at, at, at this time. And it's um after the second match, I was, I gained so much confidence because I beat the the number five of, of the C five of the tournament, and I remember after that match thinking to myself like, if I keep playing like this, I can I can actually win. And I remember winning third round, which I won the third round against the girl that has always beaten me, and I I was able to pull it out. And then quarterfinals, um, tough match. I played the C three. I was able to pull it out as well, but I started a set behind. And then semis, um, pretty comfortable with a three and two win. And then finals came. Finals was was a very intense match because we were both unseated in the tournament, so we all caught everyone by surprise. And she was playing amazing. She had a few quite um good tournaments um before Orange Bowl too. And I remember getting to the finals. Um, and every everyone was so um like engaged on on the tournament. Everyone like ev like family members, friends. People I didn't even know asking like when the finals were, and I remember everyone saying like, "Oh, like we want to go watch," and but we they couldn't because of COVID. So everyone right. had to watch watch at home with the live scoring, just like people did. And <laughs> and how's it called? Um, match started super nervous. I started down. I remember uh, I think it was like two zero. I started to break down, 
And then I I remember telling myself, like, what am I doing? Like, it's either now or never. These these chances don't come. They they probably like very very rare that that I can be in a in a Orange Bowl finals, considering how how hard it is. And then I was like, give it your all or go home. So I decided to you know start playing good tennis again. And then I was able to pull make a comeback in the first set six four. And then in the second I was up two zero. And then she also decided to um, start you know competing max level two. And at that point I told myself like. Never, no one said it was going to be easy to win an Orange Bowl. No one said. So um, losing the second set wasn't enough to bring me down um, in the finals. So I remember third set, I, I, I wanted to, like, start breaking down because the nerves and everything was super, super tense. So I, I didn't, and I started telling myself, like, again, like, no one said it was going to be easy. Just go for it. Just go for your shots. Compete like you've never competed. And yeah, it came it came out good, and I won the third set six one, and I, I I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. It took me I I had like I told you it took me like two weeks to finally like acknowledge that I had won. But yeah. it was definitely a dream come true. That's amazing, Valeria. And also your story. I talked to your mom about it, and you just back when you were I guess three years old, you had asthma, and and if you hadn't it ha- hadn't been for that you may not be playing tennis because the doctor said, Hey, she should swim and she should pick another sport and that'll like help her lungs and, and, and help her get better, which you did obviously. And the sport they picked was tennis. And pretty soon you fell in love with tennis. You told your mom, I think by age six that you only wanted to play tennis. And, and so it's amazing that from that, you know, that struggle that you had, um, because actually my little, my little girl struggles with her breathing and stuff like that. And so it, it, it's, um, it's amazing that you were able to, um, become this tennis champion. And, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your, you know, uh, Pupo is your, your high school coach, but also talk a little bit, if you would take a minute and talk about your, your personal coach. I think you met, I think right along that right when you started like age five or six, and he's been very influential in, in your life. Um, yeah, so my personal coach is, um, uh, Jose, uh, Jose Garcia. We call him Manny. Um, it, probably one of the most important, important, um, people that I've met in my life, um, has helped me as a player, as, as an athlete, as a person, um, totally inspired me to, to, uh, really fall in love with the sport because of his worth ethic, um, determination, um, his will to keep on going even when 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 things are not in in your favor. Um, so I started um, training with him when I was five, and I I remember my first class with him. Um, we instantly like made a connection because he started um, like telling me some small things to fix me at the age of five, and I instantly caught them. And from then on, it was just a movie because. Every, every everything just went uphill after that, and yeah. um, I remember I started playing tournaments um, when I was around like eight. Yeah, when I was like eight, and then yeah, when I was like eight, I started playing competitive tennis, and I remember that first year was insane because I was I was basically winning every tournament, and it was it was just so so insane because no one had seen me compete, and he was the only one the only coach that basically had believed in me that I had the level to compete and took it into his own hands to make me get to that level. And 
I feel I feel like all like all the progress I've done, all the achievements, I I owe them to him as well because I wouldn't be where I am without him. Um, like I said, his his work ethic is something that motivates me to be as well. He um like I I aspire to have his same work work ethic because he doesn't take no for an answer. He takes losing. He doesn't take losing as an option either. So yeah. all, all of these qualities just um, correlate with me as well as all of his competitiveness. They're like we're both super competitive, so it just it just makes like the the relationship as a coach and player so much um, better. And it's it's something that that I would forever be grateful. Yeah, I talked to Coach Garcia. He was in a Dominican. I think he had just lost his grandma. And we were able to have a talk, and um, I hope he's uh, back home and doing well. Um, but, uh, and, and also, uh, if people are wondering where she's going next, she's only, you're a sophomore, I believe. And she, her, her dream is to play for UCLA. So we'll probably be watching her out on the West coach and following her career. Um, her parents are from Venezuela. Valeria, if you do one day, which hopefully, and I think you will play like fed cup, would you, would you be playing for USA or Venezuela? No, I would be representing the United States. There you go. Woohoo. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> there you go. I'm excited about that. Uh, Coach Pupo, wrap it up. We got like uh, just a few seconds here. Your thoughts on, on the future of this young lady? Well, uh, you know, as I told her parents, and, you know, I've seen some good players come and, you know, come through our program. And I, I always thought she had the it factor. And when it comes to tennis, you have to have that it factor. You have to have that confident attitude on the court because tennis is all about confidence and she exudes confidence on the court. You know, she's matured since her sixth grade year up to her sophomore year here. And, you know, I just think she has, you know, talent to go far in this sport, whether it be high division one or whether it be the pro game, the pro game, she is extremely athletic she has natural movements on the court, and uh, I think the sky's the limit for the young lady. As you could tell, she's very personable. She knows you know, how to carry on a conversation, knows how to express herself, what she's feeling out on the court, so she's very coachable. And I just think uh, you know, the best is yet to come for Valeria Ray. Absolutely. I would buy stock in Valeria Ray. Absolutely. Thanks, Valeria, for joining <laughs> us. Thanks, Coach. And we'll be right back with Jerry DePaula right after this. Radio. Radio. This is Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. Yo, this is K9, and you're listening to Slam Radio Sirius XM 145. And now we're back with Front Page 305 on Sirius XM 145 Slam Radio. All right, we're back to Front Page 305. This is Walter Villa. Walt V. Money is one of my aliases. And I'm joined now by one of my good friends from my two and a half glorious years when I lived in Pittsburgh and I was a deputy sports editor and I froze my ass off. Let's welcome to the front page, Jerry DePaula. Jerry, what's going on, brother? Good afternoon, Walter. Well, when are you coming north here to help me uh, shovel out my driveway? Uh, I'm going to send John Anderson to do that, one of my friends, and he's going to shovel it. Hey, uh, Producer Frankie, can you up the volume on Jerry? I can barely hear the guy. I got you. What's going on? Want me to talk louder? There you go. Yeah, I mean, come on, Jerry. That, you're better now. I think, I, I don't know. We got it now. But, Jerry, um, I, 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 you cover, of course, um, University of Pittsburgh Sports for uh, the Tribune Review. Right. And uh, I, I read 
an interesting story the other day, kind of something I've been thinking about how down the eight, I, I've remarked the ACC kind of sucks this year, you know, and uh, the team that I root for down here, the Miami Hurricanes have not had a good year, but they've had a massive amount of injuries. I think had they been healthy, they might have been able to take this league because it's really mediocre. Um, Virginia's a team I always respect because that defense, they're going to bring it every single time. And I think that coach is the best coach in the, in the conference, even though there are bigger names. Uh, but Duke is having a down year. North Carolina is having a down year. Pitt's had its ups and downs. Um, what, what do you think, Jerry? You've been, you've been around the game a long time. Is this like this year and last year, I mean, two of the worst years we can ever remember having the ACC having? Yeah, probably, you know, this year and last year. Uh, you know, Pitt, it's unfortunate for Pitt that this, with the ACC being down, they weren't able or aren't able at the moment to take advantage of, of all these bad teams. They beat Duke, uh, but they lost to North Carolina fairly decisively. Uh, and then they lost to Wake Forest and Notre Dame, uh, two of the worst teams in the league at the time. And, and uh, now tomorrow night, they got, uh, tomorrow afternoon, they got NC State, uh, another bad team. If they can't beat that team, you know, this team, the season's going to spiral out of control for Jeff Cable. And one thing people don't understand is how far down the Pitt program was before uh, Cable took over. They were 0 19 in Kevin Stallings' final year. And in February and March, under Cable, the last three years, they're 6 and 21. And that's in a, in a bad ACC. And I'm looking at the ACC this year, maybe only getting up five or six uh, at the most seven teams in the NCAA tournament. I thought Virginia. Uh, it was one of the best teams. It was maybe the best team in the league. But they lose by 21 to Florida State, which is probably number one. Virginia's still number two. And Virginia Tech is, is the other team that's ranked, the only other team that's ranked in the ACC. And Virginia Tech lost to Pitt. So, you know, it's really hard to, to determine who's good and who's not in this league. And I think it's really it's very top-heavy. We get two or three really good teams, and everybody else is either, either average or worse than average. Yeah, I mean, the only two teams this year I've watched the Hurricanes games, but I respect Virginia. Like I said, it doesn't seem to matter who the name on the back of the jersey is, who's on the roster. They will defend their asses off. And so right. I respect that they have a system that works. Uh, Except Tony last night. Great... I'm sorry? didn't give up 81 points last night to Florida State. I mean, I, I didn't follow that, but I mean, generally speaking, yeah. I mean, Florida State is the other team that I kind of respect this year in the fact that, well, of course, Leonard Hamilton, who used to coach down here in Miami, and I think he's a terrific coach, but he, Great coach. he, always, he always has athletes. He always has athletes. He always has guys that, that um, he plays a deep roster, uh, whereas Leonard with the Hurricanes likes to play, you know, a shallow roster, six or seven guys. Um, but Leonard will, Leonard's team will wear you down. They're athletic. They usually have a seven-footer or three. Um, so those two teams, I kind of like them right now. Duke is um, really – like beating Duke is not even a big deal anymore, uh, it seems like. And so we'll see. And then I, I was, you know, kind of half paying attention, Jerry, because I got so much on my plate. And I looked up the other day. I watched mm-hmm. the um, – I, I, I looked at the AP poll. And I said, I saw, I think it was Ohio State in Michigan, three and four, or, or you can reverse the order, but two of the top four teams in the country. I'm like, what? I yeah, mean, right. and, 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 and I don't think there was an ACC team in the top 10. And so Virginia, uh, it's Virginia was. Virginia is in the top 10? Let me get number eight, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Number eight, okay, but not in the top five. You had Ohio State and Michigan above before you get to any ACC team. I thought, well, that's crazy. Um, it's it, it, it's going to be interesting. Your your thoughts on the tournament itself? Uh, they're going to do some kind of bubble. Do you think this is going to? You know, we've seen other other tournaments, whether it's the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup, and they play to uh, its conclusion. What are you expecting? This year, with the, uh, I mean, I know they're bound and determined to to complete it. What what do you what do you predict is going to happen in terms well, of? Well, I, I think I think it's a top heavy. Uh, it's college basketball top heavy this year. Just like the ACC, Gonzaga and Baylor are the two best teams in the country by far, and everybody else sort of falls in line, you know, behind them. Uh, it should, should be, you know, other than those two teams, it should be a wide open tournament. But the thing about the tournament, Walter, is you know all these conferences are going to hold their own tournaments the week prior. And they're going to be, you know, you know, congregating amongst themselves and, and uh, living amongst themselves and you know, playing basketball amongst themselves and breathing on each other. Uh, what happens if, you know, a team like Florida State, for instance, who's had a lot of COVID problems already this season, what happens if they have three or four guys that are test positive uh, after the ACC tournament is over and they're ready to go on to the NCAA? You know, do they, do they lose the three, three of their four of their best players? Uh, for, the, for the biggest games of the season, it's possible it could happen. A lot of these tournaments, you know, a lot of coaches are saying it's very, very dangerous. Uh, a couple were saying it yesterday on the ACC uh, conference uh, conference call, coaches' conference call, that it's dangerous to have these conference tournaments because you don't know what's going to happen after it's over because these guys got to test positive, I believe, seven days in a row, or test negative seven days in a row. And that's going to be very difficult for some teams. You might have some teams having to bow out because of it. And it's, it's a shame. But that's just the way it's going to happen until everybody around the country gets vaccinated. That's that's going to take probably the rest of this year. Yeah, I mean, we're so we just assume that they're going to play to its conclusion. But who knows if they run into a real coronavirus mess? I hope they don't. I hope it's a normal or close well, to normal of, tournament. The thing is, it's uh, a lot of teams that are going to be involved. Sixty-eight teams are going to be involved. They're going to be spread out, obviously. But you got to be lucky sixty-eight times. That these teams don't don't have uh, positive results, and yeah. you know it's one, it's one thing with the NFL, you know, with fewer teams going into their playoffs. It's another thing with college basketball with all these teams congregating. Getting them all in the state of Indiana is probably a smart thing to do, rather than having games all over the country. But still, it's not going to be easy, and they got to be really extra careful when they go to this Greensboro this year for the ACC tournament. They got to be really extra careful when they go to Greensboro this year. Oh. Um, talk a little bit of football NFL with you, Jerry. I know you're a big NFL guy in the remaining uh, eight or so minutes as I look at my uh, my phone here that we've got. But before we do that, real quick, what what's the temperature? What's the low in in Pittsburgh uh, tonight? It's about well, tonight. Right now, it's about 21. Okay, uh, oh. it's about noon, right? <laughs> and tonight, the low is going to be eight degrees. Eight so, degrees. Uh, eight degrees. Yes, tonight it's probably one of it's probably the coldest night of the year, actually. By, by and it's it's already mid February, so maybe in a couple of weeks we'll be out of this the deep freeze. But uh, eight degrees tonight, and uh, and the snow I think has ended for a while. So, uh, but there's still a lot of snow on the ground. That is brutal, Frankie, my producer. That's what I escaped in 2010 November when I packed up all my belongings like the Beverly Hillbillies and drove home 
uh, never to return to Pittsburgh. Sounds magical to me, actually. I mean, considering I'm from Chicago, but I moved here when I was four. So if you ask me if I remember any of it, absolutely not. But when I was on the phone with him, I go, he's like, oh, how's the weather over there? I'm like, it sucks. But then in the middle of me saying sucks, I realized that the rest of the United States is absolutely frozen. So it can't be that bad here. No, did you no. tell him about it, your McKnight Road nightmare? Yeah, well, that's yeah. I have told that story on the air, but yeah, I got stuck in a snow, a massive storm, and actually, um, and I and I crawled my way basically to a hotel room because my car just left my car for dead on the side of the road. And the next day, Jerry. Well, first of all, that night, Jerry, I think, made sure that that hotel had vacancies, uh, so that um, when I ran over there, they didn't tell me they were sold out or didn't have any spots or any rooms. And there was nothing to eat. The vending machines were all like raided. Uh, I couldn't order a pizza. The next day, Jerry picked me up and and took me to my house. And it wasn't until ten days later that I was able to dig the car out of a out of like twelve feet of snow with a bunch of buddies. Who uh, that's a whole other story, Jerry. We can go on that. You were gone. I'm sorry. A few months later, you were gone to Florida. Back to Florida. Yeah, yeah, I knew that was my last winter there. But, but Jerry, I want to talk football with you okay. right quick. Um, you know, first of all, you're, you're, you're there in the home of the Steelers. The, uh, I saw a uh, New York Post story, I think I sent it to you, Mason Rudolph, the backup quarterback, big-time props. <laughs> He's dating that uh, Jenny Bouchard or whatever her name is, tennis, tennis player. Tennis player, tennis player, right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, she is well, uh, gorgeous. And uh, so good for him. But um, what are your thoughts on on Deshaun Watson? It seems like um, probably a third of the league, or if not a half the league, is looking to trade for him, including uh, the Dolphins down here. Um, you know, the the Texans. I'll give you my thoughts first, Jerry, first Jerry, and then you can react. But the Texans say they're okay. not going to trade him. Not going to trade him. Not going to trade him. But if he makes himself enough of a nuisance, they will trade him. And you just can't have a quarterback who's going to be bad-mouthing the team, who's unhappy. That's an untenable situation. So I think if he wants it bad enough, he will get traded. And then the question is where and for how much, and it'll be a large bounty of draft picks and players and whatnot. What do you, what do you think? Do you agree? Do you think he will get traded in the end? I think eventually he probably will if he, if he makes enough noise. Now, I remember when David Tully was hired as Houston's coach a few weeks ago, and I know David Tully. He was a Steelers wide receivers coach under Bill Collar uh, many years ago, and he's been around the league a long, long time. He's a smart guy. Uh, but he said that, that I took this job because I assumed that Deshaun Watson was going to be my quarterback. And, and he probably would have taken it anyway because he was quite desperate for a job. But, right. but nonetheless, uh, I, I think that you know Watson – could cause a lot of problems, and he, he could get trained. But how much is going to be the other thing? Is, is, is Miami, for instance, going to want to give up a couple first-round draft picks when they've already had two? And I guess two could be a, a chip going the other way, right? If uh, they give two and a, and, a, and a couple draft picks to Houston, then Watson could go, right? Correct. Yeah, two would be the offering and then draft picks. And, you know, two uh, uh, was just his first year. Um, he could be something or he may not. We really don't know. And they didn't really like let it open up the playbook. They, they had Fitzy, Fitzmagic there. It was doing a lot of the more daring stuff. And so it, it would be going from a surefire quarterback and Deshaun Watson, who's only 25 years old. But those types of quarterbacks just don't get traded very often to a right, guy yeah. that you don't know. Maybe Tua will be something. Maybe he won't. 
Um, I think Watson's in terms of when I say something, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. Watson has a better upside than Tua, obviously. You know, I, I think in, in the end, Watson's going to be a much better quarterback. You shouldn't tell Tua short yet because he's only been in the league for a year and he's had had some injuries. Uh, but I, I really, I really think that you know, trading Watson's going to be difficult because I think a lot of these teams don't want to give up two first round draft picks. You know, it's, that's a lot to give up, and unless you're desperate for a quarterback, and a lot of teams are desperate for a quarterback, your Jets are probably you know look, looking to make a deal like that. You know, oh, does Watson want to go to New York? I, I, I absolutely think they would. Look at look at the um, the Rams. Didn't they just you know for Stafford and they and they gave up the younger quarterback and then they give up two first round picks in that deal? Yeah. When you look at that trade, teams absolutely will trade three and maybe four first round for Deshaun Watson because you don't what get a guy twenty five years old in the. Go ahead. Four first round picks is a lot, and and. Uh, the Washington is very good, and obviously he's one of the top five quarterbacks in the NFL. Uh, and it's going to be, but it's still going to be very difficult to trade him. And I think if Vitaly's a smart guy, he sits Watson down and talks to him, you know. And he says, "We're going to make some we had made some mistakes in the past before I got here, you know, when they when they made some trades that were very uh, unfair for for the Texans." And Vitaly's going to be the guy that says, "Okay, you were unhappy with the previous regime and Bill O'Brien." Now we're going to. I'm going to. I'm going to be in charge, and we're going to do things differently. We're going to get you wide receivers. We're going to get you an offensive line. And if you can bear with us for a year and a half, we're going to be okay. Now, if Watson buys all that, you know, we'll see. You know, uh, maybe they give him a new contract to appease him a little bit. You know, throw, throw, throw some money his way uh, to keep him in, in Houston uh, because uh, teams are going to want to trade for him. But I don't see four first round picks. I could see two, two first round picks, and something else going back. Uh, going back to Houston like a quarterback. Yeah, I, I think teams are going to pay uh, a pretty hefty price for him. Jerry, we're uh, down in the in the last minute of our show. Thanks for But, yeah, d- just to wrap it up, I, I do think they're going to pay, and I don't know if it'll be the Dolphins. It'll be the Jets. Uh, they'll give Sam Darnold and, and, and draft picks and a player, and maybe that's what happens. But, uh, well, uh, Frankie, are we out of show? Yes, sir. Yeah, we're That's out of the show. Thanks, Jerry. We're done? Okay. Walter, Frankie, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Jerry. Okay, take care. All right, see you next week. The views and opinions expressed on Front Page 305 are entirely those of the hosts, guests, and callers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Slam Radio. The views and opinions expressed on Front Page 305 are entirely those of the hosts, guests, and callers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Slam Radio.